Um, as you have gathered, uh, we're now in the first Sunday after Easter, and we're beginning a new series. Last series in Lent was the Gospel in Seven Words, and we absolutely loved how many of you shared with us your seven words, and God willing, you'll be able to put that into practice uh, with the people who live close to you, and especially those who are close to you but far from Jesus, where you live, work, and play. We're going to shift gears a little bit and move from uh, the fact that Jesus is alive and well, raised from the dead, that's the gospel at its essence and heart, to the question, okay, what are we supposed to do next? Right? We live in between the resurrection, Jesus is alive and well, he's reigning, and his return when he brings to completion his work of redeeming and restoring a broken and messy world. And so what do we do during that time? Maybe you've asked yourself one of these questions. Why do I exist? How do I fit in? Or what is my purpose in life? I talked to a couple high school seniors who are actually in the kitchen, Chris and Tim. Uh, they're seniors in high school getting ready to go off to college. Iowa State, Cyclones, right, for Tim. And then Michigan Tech, that's way up almost in Canada. Technically still Michigan, right? <laughs> but uh, so they're trying to figure out their next season of life. Maybe for you it was when you were getting ready to go to college, maybe start a career path. Or maybe it's mid-career and you're like, ah, something's not fitting quite right. And so you're thinking about a move. Maybe it's relationship-driven, and you're struggling in connections with family and friends, and maybe even your spouse, and you're like, how is this supposed to work? At some point in our life, I think God stirs us up to wrestle with these kind of questions, and we've done that also as an organization. Uh, a few years ago, we kind of refreshed and revisited our mission, vision, and values, and our mission has been the same language for at least a decade or more, leading people to a full life in Christ. We use that because we love the passage and the promise in John 10, 10. He says, the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus promises, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full or abundantly. Our vision statement uh, is a little newer, but it's, it, it embodies what we think God is calling us to do to make a difference in the world. And we call that seeing lives and communities transformed as we become more like Jesus. We believe that as you follow Jesus, as you get committed to a life with him, as you do that in community with others, it actually changes your life for the better. And we love hearing and telling stories about lives and families and whole communities transformed as we do this work of becoming more like Jesus. A four newer words are the four values that emerge through this process. These are four words that we believe are true about our community that make us distinct and unique from the churches down the street and even other Lutheran churches as part of our church body. We share doctrine and practice in many ways. But this is that special sauce, you might say, the thing that causes St. Peter to stand out. So these four words, we've talked about them before, community, empowering, boldness, and joy. I want to focus in on the second one, which sometimes can be a little tricky, empowering. By that we mean unleashing everyone's unique purpose and potential. Um, we do that because God gives everyone gifts and talents to be used for the good of others. And we're confident that every girl and boy, woman and man has a unique role in God's work in the world, which compels us to seek to help everyone discover their purpose and potential to bring good news, the gospel, like the seven words we talked about all throughout Lent, where they live, work, and play. I show you this because this series, in a sense, embodies a lot of what that value is all about. 
every single one of you, whether you're at home joining us on the live stream or on demand or in the room this morning, you are here for a purpose, not an accident. And God has a hope and a dream and a plan for you. So here's how we're going to approach it. We're going to start today, God uh, as the great giver. Uh, next weekend, I'm going to unpack for you natural gifts and abilities. That is, some of the hardwired skills, passions, abilities, maybe you've learned along the way that you have that prepare you for your work in the world. And then we're going to spend four weeks on spiritual gifts, described specifically in Scripture, named in Scripture, and each of you, by faith, in your baptism, has been given one. That's what Scripture promises. And maybe you know what it is, maybe you don't, and we're going to try to help you discover what it is, and then how to be aware of it, how to be intentional with it, and how to be generous through it. And then our last stop, we didn't want to go through the spiritual gifts concept without touching on the so-called miraculous spiritual gifts. If you've done any study or been in a Bible study or hung around Christians for a long time who love spiritual gifts, you've probably heard about things like uh, miracles of healing and prophecy and other things along those lines, which sometimes make us a little bit nervous. Like, how does that work today? We're going to spend some time in our final week unpacking that and how they are still very much alive and well and how God uses them uh, for the good of others and for his glory. So today we're going to start by talking about <clears throat> God as the great giver. And to do that, I want to take you to a place in Greece where Sarah and I were able to lead some friends from St. Peter and others on a tour back in 2016. This is called uh, the Areopagus, or Mars Hill. It's a rock outcropping uh, with the Parthenon on the Acropolis uh, in the background there. In Acts chapter 17, uh, Luke tells us that Paul made his way to this very place because this is where all the men of the city who had the means and the ability would love to spend their times discussing the news and the philosophies of the day. If you can see it in the picture, it's a little bit faint to make out. There's actually some teenagers hanging out there, and I'm not sure they're discussing philosophy, uh, but they're hanging out and they're doing some fun stuff. And so people have been on that rock for thousands of years as a gathering place just below this magnificent temple, the Parthenon. And it's in ruins now, but it's still a wonder to behold. And, and Paul there meets some of the men of the city, and he wants to bring them some good news. And he does it in a pretty interesting way. Again, talking to a bunch of Greek philosophers, leading men of the city, he starts by appealing to something they were already all familiar with, an altar in that area to an unknown god. Uh, in fact, history tells us there were multiple cities that had altars to the unknown god, or gods, plural. The one in Athens, this is a quick little map of Greece. Athens is kind of in the center of that green part. It's like a collection of, of islands and a peninsula. And then up to the north towards Mount Olympus in Olympia, there was another altar to an unknown god. This is according to Pausanias, a second century Greek geographer. And there's one over in modern-day Turkey. On this map, it's called Asia Minor. It's underneath that block that says uh, Greek settled area. That was the city of Pergamum. So what's interesting is this reveals to us within the Greco-Roman culture a concern about maybe leaving out one of the gods that might be out there they didn't want to forget about. So they had like a placeholder for what they didn't know for sure. And it's to that uncertainty but openness that Paul then is ready to preach some good news. So here's how it begins, verse 24 and 25. 
The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, even that big fascinating uh, Parthenon up at the top of the hill, nor is he served by human needs as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. In just these two short verses, Paul appeals to two fundamental doctrines or teachings about who God is and what he does. The first is all over Scripture, and that is God as creator. So think back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in chapter 1 and then the first part of chapter 2, he describes how he created humankind as the centerpiece of his creation, forming them in his own image out of the dust of the ground and then out of a piece of Adam's side, Adam and Eve brought first together. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and everything that was made was made through him. That's how John begins his gospel describing Jesus as this logos, this Greek concept of the Word that is operative, and now also we know is God in human flesh. Paul, in Colossians 1, 16, puts that together this way. He says, all things were created through him and for him, talking about Jesus, and in him all things hold together. If you were to study your scriptures, what you'd find is from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, almost every page, almost every chapter and book has some appeal to the reality of God as our creator. And this should be phenomenally good news for us. Because of what it means is that you are not here through a random uh, collection of circumstances. Uh, You are not an accident of the cosmos. You are uniquely created by God in his image, filled with purpose and potential. He knows you, he loves you, and he has an amazing plan for your life. God as creator introduces us to that whole concept. Here's a second key teaching from that passage, God as provider. Maybe you love the words of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know, there's another translation that goes like this, the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything that I need. Same concept, slightly different way to approach it, right? But what it describes is God is a provider who takes care of every need we have. Paul says it like this in Philippians 4, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So these two go hand in hand. God is creator and God is provider. He supplies us with everything we have. The scripture tells us every beat of our heart, every breath of our mouth, every moment of every day is actually a gift from him. That's why Paul said uh, everything is dependent on him. So God has created you. God knows you intimately. He knows every aspect of every part of his creation. Scripture says, not even the lilies of the field or the birds of the air go without, because God takes care of them. And not even one little bitty bird falls from the sky without God noticing and caring about it. And then Jesus adds, how much more important are you than the birds and the flowers? God's delight is, is in everything he has made, but especially you as his human pinnacle of his creation. So God has created you. God supplies everything that you have in abundance, far more than we could ask or imagine. And then he says, no, I've got some stuff I'd love for you to do. 
Before we get to that, let's return to Paul's words. He made from one man, referencing Adam, again back to creation, that's where he's starting, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and their boundaries of their dwelling place. Now, maybe you're a student of history, world history, and you're aware uh, that the boundaries of nations and cities and states is actually fairly fluid. If you look back over kind of long history, kingdoms rise and fall, and sometimes it's hard to really anticipate how that's going to happen. Maybe it's through war, or whether it's through merger, or some sort of separation or division. Maybe it's driven by natural disaster, famine, or flood. Uh, But Scripture says kingdoms rise and fall, but God remains sovereign over it all. And here's what that means. It means that the same thing is true about you. You are here at this precise moment, whether in the Life Center or joining us from your home, listening to these words because God has drawn you to this moment and says, I have something I want you to hear and know. He orchestrates all of everything for your good and for His glory. He's designed and appointed every human, every nation, every tribe and tongue. And here's where He's going to go with it that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Now, I'm going to pause right there real quick. I get this picture whenever I read this verse of kind of just like groping in the dark, like the power goes out and you're trying to find your way to the, uh, the phone or the flashlight or something like that, or you get up in the middle of the night and you're disoriented, like we had a loud or truck drive by last night. It was really loud. The windows were open, which is great, right? And you just kind of wake up in a shot and you're just like trying to figure out where you are and where you're going. What Paul says, and I, I love his optimism here, is that these pagan Greeks are, in their own way, kind of blindly searching for the one true God and true truth. And God, fascinating, welcomes this. And he says, I've got great plans for you. Seek me and you shall find me. Jesus' own words. Why? Because he is not actually far from each one of us. And then Paul quotes, couple of their own Greek philosophers. Here's the first one. In him we live and move and have our being. This brings us to a third characteristic of God that I want to explore today as we get started, and that is God as imminent. Now, this may not be a familiar word. It's one of two words that are contrasting two aspects of God, transcendent and imminent. Transcendent means God is entirely other than us. His, His ways are not our ways. His words are hard to comprehend. He's beyond us. Like, he is so great. He knows everything. He's everywhere all the time. Uh, He's eternal. Like, these aspects of God are beyond us. That's what transcendent means. Imminent means God is very, very close and desires to be very close with you. So, for example, God's own words from Jeremiah at that time in chapter 23. Am I a God at hand, close, and not a God far away, transcendent? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot find him or see him? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? God invites us to realize both his transcendence and his imminence. If that word trips you up, here's another one very similar, same concept, God as Emmanuel. Right, the Isaiah 7 promise, we read this all the time around Christmas time. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? 
God with us. Andy, you've got it, right? Here's the fascinating thing. From before the beginning of everything, all the way now and into forever, God's greatest hope and dream is to share life with you. He's done everything in order to be close with you and have you return to him. That's the whole cross and resurrection, redeeming and restoring and returning the lost sheep. And he says, I have filled you with all sorts of hopes and dreams and plans and potential. And I want you to discover how I've given you all of that. These are my gifts so that you can use them for my glory to bring beauty and hope and wonderful things to this world. Over the next six weeks, we're going to explore that in more detail. Today, we're just getting started with our series, Gifted for More. But our hope and prayer is that this stirs up in you a desire to discover or rediscover your unique calling in life so that you can be empowered and released to love and serve in Jesus' name in a way that transforms the world. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all human understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ until he returns and brings us into resurrection life.